You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 18 is where we will pick up again today. Two weeks ago, we covered the first portion of the chapter. And then last week, we had our application Sunday. Uh, for those that are visiting our application Sunday, every uh, several weeks when we finish a chapter or a section of scripture, we step back and we uh, work through some application points. We review a lot of the things that we've talked about. We eat breakfast together. We partake in the Lord's Supper together. And so we did that last week. We had our application Sunday and worked through uh, 15, 16, 17, and that first part of 18, and really honed in on some areas of application. But when we looked at the beginning of Genesis chapter 18 a couple of weeks ago, we really highlighted what Jesus, what we believe to be Jesus. We don't know for sure. It's a uh, a supernatural visitor that comes to uh, sit down and to eat with Abraham in his home um, and interacts with him and Sarah. Uh, Jesus reveals that he is a God where where nothing is too hard for him. As they're having discussions about the promises of of the coming child Isaac, uh, Sarah laughs. She laughs out. She laughs out loud or, or laughs in a way where where Jesus understands that. Whether it's uh, noting her mentally doubting the capability of him bringing a child into her, whether she uh, expresses that outwardly, but uh, she's rebuked for it. She's, uh, she's questioned about it, and uh, it's revealed that God is a God who is capable, capable of doing anything, that nothing's too hard for him. And so even though she is a woman who, is, uh, who has been infertile her whole life, never had a child, and has now moved to the point uh, where she's an age now where she is incapable of having children, even if she was not infertile earlier in life, She's going to have a child, and, and God promises her that, promises that she's a part of this Abrahamic covenant. And so Jesus reveals to her that he's a God where nothing is too hard for him. And so we had talked about these supernatural visitors. We see in chapter 19 that two of them at least seem to be angels who end up visiting Sodom. And so we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 18 with verse 16. This is after um, the promises have been reassured once again that Isaac is to come within the next year. Um, and, and Sarah has questioned that internally and um, has been rebuked for that. And it says in verse 16, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place... That and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, 
when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. I'm going to show you our summary sentence for today if you're taking notes. All right, our summary sentence for today, where we're going with today's sermon. Not only is nothing too hard for God, everything that God does is right and with purpose, including his judgment upon the wicked. Not only is nothing too hard for God, everything that God does is right and with purpose, including his judgment upon the wicked. We talked, uh, we've been talking for several weeks now about a God who is all powerful, who can make promises, who can keep those promises. Uh, Nothing's impossible with him. Nothing is too hard for him. So we're talking about this omnipotent God, this all powerful God. God has all the power. And scripture reveals to us that, that the evil forces, Satan and his demons can do nothing unless God permits it to happen. That they are incapable of functioning outside of God's providential control. And so we serve an all-powerful God who has, who has all capabilities of doing anything. And then what's so necessary for us to find assurance and hope in that type of God. God further reveals that not only is he a God where nothing is too hard for him. He is a God who always does the right thing with that power. And that should really resonate with us this morning. We're not talking about a God who's just all powerful that we have to wonder, will today be the day that he decides to use his power against us? No, it's a God who reveals himself as a God who always does the right thing. That he's a all powerful judge who judges justly. He's an all powerful ruler who always does the right thing. You'll remember we said that these, these visitors that come to Abraham, one we speculate being the pre-incarnate Jesus, uh, the other two being angels, there was a twofold purpose in their visit. They come with the purpose of announcing the birth of Isaac to Sarah, but now that dinner has concluded, they are now gearing up to pronounce judgment upon Sodom. You have them coming with great blessing for one family, and if we want to think of Abraham in terms of being a nation, even though he's yet to produce a child, we can talk about these coming to pronounce blessing upon a nation, the nation that will eventually come from Abraham, but also coming to pronounce judgment upon another nation, Sodom. So there was a twofold purpose for this supernatural visit. So after dinner, the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And then in verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Which leaves us with a question here that we want to try to answer. Why reveal the plans for Sodom to Abraham? And God seems to be, in human terms, reconciling this with himself. Or maybe he's conversing with the two angels that are with him. Hey, we're about to go do something and we know what we're about to go do. We know that Sodom is about to perish. Should we clue Abraham into that? We've just had a great dinner with him, a great discussion. We've talked about the blessings that are coming his way. Should we reveal these plans to Abraham? And God goes on to say, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Is is that reason for us to share with Abraham what we're about to do? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to do. Then the Lord said, and so God further reveals to Abraham his plans. The answer to our question is God reveals to Abraham his plan of destruction for the benefit of Abraham. So why does God reveal these plans to Abraham? It's for his benefit. I'm going to reveal, I'm going to share with you two ways that it's a benefit to Abraham. Okay. But God decides to clue in Abraham to what's about to happen. All right. Abraham uh, has no ties to Sodom except for the fact that his nephew who has kind of abandoned him lives there. But God chooses to inform him about these supernatural plans for this city. This is once again a sign of friendship that God has with Abraham. You'll remember that scripture says Abraham was a friend of God. And then Jesus goes on to say that his disciples are considered friends. And he said one way you know that you're friends with God is that God clues you in to his plans. 
you're more than a servant. A servant just goes about what the master tells them to do. But a, a friend of the master is one that the master clues in to his plans. And so God says, Abraham is a friend. And so I'm going to tell Abraham of my plans. I think it's also interesting to note here that God never tells Abraham that he plans to judge Sodom, right? Abraham just rightly assumes it. It says, um, verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so the Lord shares this with Abraham. The men uh, that were with Jesus there turned to go to Sodom. But Abraham still stood with the Lord. And then Abraham begins to bargain with God. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 there. God never said that he intended to go down there and destroy. But I think it's evidence of the fact that Abraham understood the character of God. That God cannot tolerate sin. That God cannot tolerate wickedness. That God cannot tolerate unrighteousness and injustice. And so God says, Abraham, I've heard an outcry against this city. I'm going to go down there and see if it's true or not. Abraham knows that it's true, right? He, he doesn't even for a second believe that it's not true. He doesn't say, oh, God, you're going to get down there and find that's a great city. You're going to find that your, your, your uh, reports are false, that what you've heard is wrong. No, Abraham goes into protection mode here and says, when you get down there, are you going to wipe everybody away, even the righteous? Because you're going to find... You're going to find some unrighteousness. You're going to find some injustice down there. You're going to find that the outcries that you've heard are accurate and valid. Are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And it's a question that we're going to answer again as well uh, this morning. But Abraham understood that when God finds this type of behavior, that it warrants his judgment. But I think God, in answering this question, he reveals to Abraham his plan of destruction for the benefit of Abraham. I think he, he does it. In two different ways. There's two different benefits for Abraham. All right. The first benefit that we see is that God desires to show Abraham that he is the source of blessing and cursing in this situation. God desires to show Abraham that he is the source of blessing and the source of cursing in this situation. The same messengers that bring hope. And blessing to Abraham's nation are the same ones that bring judgment and death to another nation. Remember, this is a book of origins. This is a book of beginnings. And God is revealing who he is and how he functions. And remember, in the context, this is Moses writing to the children of Israel who have spent uh, hundreds of years in Egypt in bondage that are about to leave Egypt, that are about to go into the promised land. The Israelites have been indoctrinated with false doctrine from the Egyptians' way of thinking about gods. There's a God for this and a God for this and a God for this. There's good gods and bad gods. They're about to go into a promised land full of people who worship all kinds of gods. And I think God wants to clarify here that there's one God, one all-powerful being that blesses and brings judgment. That he's the source of both. He's a, he's a gracious, merciful God who makes promises. But he's also a God of wrath and judgment against sin and unrighteousness. And so God is going to allow Abraham a glimpse. Because Abraham didn't go to Sunday school, right? Abraham didn't grow up in church. Abraham doesn't know the things that we readily accept about our God. And so God says, here's a Sunday school lesson for you. I'm a God who brings grace and mercy, but I'm also a God who judges sin. And it comes from the same God, not Satan. It's not Satan who's given... Uh, independent power to wreak havoc upon Sodom. In fact, Satan wouldn't do that, right? He would want Sodom to continue to flourish and to continue to spread that wickedness across the earth. God says, I'm a God of both. I'm a God who brings mercy and grace and, and, and uh, promises, but I'm also a God who cannot tolerate unrighteousness, cannot, in, uh, cannot tolerate injustice. If Abraham is going to be a blessing to the nations, he probably deserves to know that the one closest to him is being removed. So this is further clarification to Abraham about the plans that God has for him. You're going to be a blessing to all nations. We should probably tell Abraham, since we've told him to be a blessing to all nations, that we're about to remove one that's within his sphere of influence. 
And so this is a reminder to Abraham of his responsibilities. This is a reminder of the fact that Sodom is perishing. And we'll talk more about the lack of influence that Lot had. Okay, Lot's considered a righteous person. The scriptures call him that. Um, And if the scriptures didn't call him that, we would probably fail to call him that based on what we know about Lot. But uh, 2 Peter calls him a righteous man, talks about him being grieved over the actions of those around him. But his presence in Sodom seems to have little to no effect. There's, there's really nobody outside of his family that would be considered a follower of Yahweh. They all perish. They all perish when the judgment comes. All right. Uh, but, but ultimately, God wants to reveal to Abraham that one of the nations that he's called to be a blessing to is being removed uh, from his uh, scope of influence. So God desires to show Abraham that he is the source of blessing and cursing in this situation. But secondly... God desires to provide Abraham with a teaching tool to ensure Israel learns the importance of righteousness and justice. Look back to what God says here. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Verse 19, for I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. God knows that Abraham will respond favorably to this knowledge and will teach his descendants appropriately. God wants to give Abraham a teaching tool. He's He's expected to grow a nation. He's supposed to have a child who will also have children, who will have children and children and children, and they're going to grow into the nation of Israel. And God wants to make sure that this nation is founded upon righteousness and justice. And we can see both of those themes running throughout the Old Testament law that's given to Moses at Mount Sinai, that the emphasis is placed on righteousness and justice. And there's also this responsibility to teach it to your children. So that that, that that concept, that mindset, those, 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 uh, those ideas continue to flow and infiltrate that nation as it continues to grow and develop. Uh, we see this, this mandated in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's to be a constant reminder. Righteousness and justice God says, I want to give Abraham a teaching tool. I want to give him something to work with as he has a child and as his kids, as his kids have kids. I want to give them a teaching tool to reference back to as to why righteousness and justice are so important. Sodom becomes a teaching tool for what happens to those who reject righteousness and justice. In Second Peter, and we're going to refer to this passage a couple of times today, but in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Right? They're a, they're a precursor to what is going to come. Uh, they, they are a, a small sampling of what the day of the Lord looks like. When the day of the Lord comes and Jesus comes in all of his glory, he too will come with a twofold purpose. We talked about this in First and Second Thessalonians. When Jesus returns, it's the most glorious day possible for believers, and it's the most dreadful day possible for those that are engulfed in unrighteousness and injustice. And the, the book of Thessalonians uh, talks about those two different perspectives. For one, it's a great day, a great day of validation where Jesus inflicts justice and, and rewards those that have been following him and, and rescues them into his presence forever. For those that have rejected, it, it's, a, it's a dreadful day. It's a day of condemnation. Sodom and Gomorrah is an example. It's an example of the righteous being rescued and those that are unrighteous being condemned 
being separated from God. God wants a teaching tool for Abraham to build the nation of Israel upon. What needed to be taught exactly? Back in Genesis chapter 18, it says in verse... uh, I'm to verse 19. For I have chosen him that they may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to keep the way of Yahweh, by doing righteousness and justice. What needs to be taught? To keep the way of Yahweh, to do righteousness, to do justice. Uh, we said these themes kind of run through the Old Testament in God's instructions to his people. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, this idea is reiterated once again. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What do we mean by a righteous person or a just person? Uh, A couple of things here. Um, A righteous person is one who rightly orders community or or one who who lives the right way, who does the right thing, who, who lives for the good of other people. One who rightly orders community and it's also one who restores broken community. A just person is one who, who restores community when it's been broken. Especially by punishing the oppressor and delivering the oppressed. So a righteous person or a just person is one who, who lives in a certain way that is good for the benefit of others. And then when something uh, violates or threatens that type of community. Where, where someone is oppressed. Where injustice is being done to someone. They're the type of individual that steps in to fix that, to correct that, and when necessary, to punish those that would seek to threaten that community. One who rightly orders community and restores broken community, especially by punishing the oppressor and delivering the oppressed. And what we're going to see is that Sodom was guilty of not being this type of environment. All right, when we think of Sodom, and if I were to ask you, if we were to take a poll, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed why why did god bring down fire upon those cities most of us would answer with some type of sexual sin most of us would start to move towards uh, some type of unnatural type sexual sin and that that's very likely and most likely one of the main elements of why god's judgment comes and we'll talk more about that next week when we get into 19 but what we're going to find as well is that there was great injustice being done that the oppressed were not being taken care of like they were supposed to be. That they were being exploited. A righteous person, a just person, is one who orders the community in a way that's good for everybody and seeks to restore a broken community when it's threatened or violated. I remember um, at Trinity, so I have a lot of, I deal with a lot of issues with kids being mean to other kids. Um, It just, for whatever reason, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, is an age where, where you really see meanness come out between kids. And I remember having a kid in my office one day, and, and he was guilty of, um, of attacking the, the, the weaker individual, all right? The, the student that's, that maybe is not as, as popular, not as athletic, doesn't have the, uh, the social framework that this kid has, doesn't have the, the same level of friendships with other kids. I mean, just a, a, a one that you might would consider a weaker individual that needs to be taken care of, that needs to be looked out for. And this kid was attacking him, attacking him with his words, with his actions, was, was kind of using him in a way to build himself up. Let me make fun of this kid so that everybody laughs and thinks that I'm the funny kid, that, that I'm the cool kid. And so was using this kid for an advantage to himself. And so I'm working through it with him, and I remember bringing in his dad to help with that conversation. So me and his dad are sitting there talking to him, and, and his dad really begins to rebuke him over the idea that I've raised you to be a son of mine that looks out for those that are weak, that doesn't contribute to the problem, doesn't create the problem, but sees that type of problem, sees other kids mistreating a kid, and then steps in to fix it. He says, I've, I've raised you to be that type of son. And that really, it really stuck with me um, because AJ and, and Abram are, are going to start to get to that age where I can really begin to teach them these type of lessons. And I want both of my sons to be those type of kids. The kids that look out for the other kids that are being oppressed. And, and that's what this, this dad was saying to his son. You're, you're, not only are you standing back passively, you're, it's not that you're seeing this happen and not doing anything about it. 
He says, you're the one that's creating it. You're helping to create an, an environment of oppression for these students that, that you ought to be protecting and looking after. And, and, and so God says, I want Abraham to teach righteousness and justice to his children so that this nation that I want to grow and develop is founded upon these concepts. To do justice then means to restore a community's right order under God's rule by punishing those who destroy it with the oppression of the weak and by delivering the oppressed. So it's this mindset of looking out for the oppressed and and working to combat those that would attack these type of individuals. This was what was happening in Sodom. This is what God wants to instruct Abraham will not be tolerated. And he wants to grasp, he wants him to grasp this lesson in such a way that Israel avoids this type of behavior. So God reveals his plans for Sodom to Abraham. He wants him to see that he's the source of it. So when Abraham finds out that Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed, he knows why and he knows who did it. This isn't the same as King Chedorlaomer coming in and wreaking havoc on the cities, right? We, we talked about that several weeks ago where this king just came in and, and was devastating kingdoms. Just kind of a, we're not told that God was bringing judgment, so just kind of a, a natural flow of events. Man is sinful and man is jealous and man wants things and craves things. James says you don't have things and so you, you, you create wars to get the things that you want, right? So, so those events that Abraham hears about just seem to be a natural flow of sinful man doing sinful things. This is divine judgment. And so God wants him to connect when he hears about Sodom and what happens to Sodom and maybe even sees what happens to Sodom because they're obviously close enough for them to look in that direction that he connects the fact this is a God bringing divine judgment because they were unrighteous and they, they tolerated injustice and that can't be what my nation is known for. I've got to teach my people to be different than the people of Sodom. All right, so God answers that question for us. He tells us why he clues Abraham in and allows him to be a part of this discussion. So we go back to Genesis chapter 18 now. We get our second question. So God tells him, here's what we're going to do. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin is very grave, I'll go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So our second question this morning is, Does God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Does God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, I think it's important for us to note that we're talking about in regards to judgment and not just what we would reference as um, the natural outplaying of events, meaning like natural disasters or just unfortunate type circumstances. What I mean by that is in Luke chapter 13... Verse 4. Um, we'll start in verse 1. Jesus is talking here and he says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because, because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, so we would say that God God oversees everything. But in these events, God seems to be saying these events didn't happen because of divine judgment upon them being worse than somebody else. Death is a part of human life because of Adam and Eve. We all die. We all die differently, some more tragic than others. But in reality, all death is tragic, whether you die as a, as a young child or whether you die as a 90-year-old in your bed at night in your sleep peacefully. Death is tragic. Death is not how it's supposed to be. Death is an echo of what went wrong in the Garden of Eden. Okay, But there are times when Jesus says, Things are just playing out this way and people are dying because this is the natural thing that happens because of sin. 
There are other times when God steps in particularly to judge a group of people for their sin. Okay, so there are times when when the righteous are also included in some of these events. But in regards to this situation, I think Abraham is asking, do the righteous get swept away with the wicked when you bring judgment upon the earth? And so God wants to seek to answer that question. Abraham is asking, should the entire community suffer because of the actions of some? Abraham is speculating, not everybody in Sodom is bad. Now, it's, it's true, there's a lot of bad people in Sodom. But should everybody be punished because of the actions of a few? Would you not spare those who were not guilty of these actions? That's the, the question that's posed to God by Abraham. Are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then he begins to, to bargain with God and begins to present scenarios. What about this amount? What about this amount? What about this amount? Would you still punish the city for this amount? The answer to the question is that God is willing to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. God is willing to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. And while Abraham stops at the number 10, we could speculate that he could have gone lower and received the same answer. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, Run to and, thro- for, to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Not, not the individual, but pardon the city of Jerusalem if you can find one individual who does justice and seeks truth. God is willing to spare the wicked For the sake of the righteous. And what we have here in Genesis chapter 18. Is Abraham interceding for the righteous. And God assures him they will be spared if they exist. God is willing to further overlook the sins of many. He's willing to overlook the sins of Sodom. For the sake of a few doing the right thing. And I find that interesting because I think we oftentimes operate the opposite way. And I know having been in the classroom, a lot of times as a teacher, the temptation is, is that if a few are doing the wrong thing, that we end up punishing the entire class, right? Hey, we're going to have group discussion. I want you guys to work in groups. I want you to keep your, your noise level at a, at a certain level. Um, I want to give you some time to work on your own. The, cloud, the, crowd, uh, the class gets it's loud and rambunctious, and, and the teacher says, okay, Everybody back to your seats. Everybody has to read on their own. No talking. Why? Because this table won't be quiet. All right? I've seen that time and time again. Teachers that, that will punish to get control of their classroom because of the, the dealings of a few. And I'll confess as a teacher, I don't recall ever rewarding the entire class because of the good actions of a few. I, I just wasn't prone to think that way. Never did I say, hey, no homework tonight. Because these three did theirs last night, right? No, no, normally we would say everybody has extra homework because these three won't quit talking or, or these three continue to do this behavior. Um, God, God seems to be functioning differently here. If we, if we can find 10 people, 10 people who are doing the right thing, I'll spare Sodom. I have no idea how many people lived in Sodom. But I think 50, when, when Abraham starts with 50, I think that was already a low number. And I think when you get down to 10, I mean, you're talking about small percentage here of the amount of people that have to be doing the right thing. We're talking about two cities here, two cities here. I'll spare them all for 10 people that are doing the right thing. That's an incredible picture into God's uh, emotions and personality and attributes here that he doesn't desire the death of the wicked. He doesn't desire the death of the wicked. Scripture tells us that. Um, it tells us that, that, that God is, is desiring the salvation of the wicked. And we'll get to that passage here in a minute. But what we find here is that God is willing to respond to prayer with holiness and justice where he is enabled to do so. God is willing to respond to man's prayer. And he'll respond in holiness and justice where he's enabled to do so. This is, this is a great picture of, of the power of prayer. Abraham intercedes for these people, and God responds to the, this intercession. 
says, if we can find 10, I'll spare it. I'll spare the city. I don't know why Abraham stopped at 10. Um, it's possible that in his mind, and, and we'll look, we know that, that there was Lot and his wife. We know he has two daughters. But the way the text reads, it's possible that he had two other daughters that may have been married. Um, and so it may have been that Abraham, in his, in his thinking, he's like, surely there's 10. I know Lot has 10 in his family. Like, like surely we can get to 10. I don't know why he stopped at 10. Uh, it, it may have been as well that in, that in his mindset, anything less than 10, they don't deserve to be saved for it. Let's just get those guys out and, and punish the rest. I don't know why he stopped at 10. Um, but God very graciously responds to his intercession each step of the way. And it gives us a picture of God's mercy and grace. That he doesn't just wake up one day and say, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're done. I'm going to bring judgment. And that's what liberals would like us to believe about the God of the Old Testament. But he's an angry God. He's not good. How could we ever trust him? How could we ever worship him? He kills people. And yet what we find here is a God who is desiring to show grace and mercy. He reveals that about his nature. He doesn't wake up. He, he's been hearing these outcries for years. And we'll, and we'll see more. There's, their sin has been going on for decades. And, and he's graciously overlooked it. He's graciously tolerated it. Not because he approves of it but because he desires them to come to repentance. And even at this point when he's ready to bring judgment, Abraham, if we can find 10, if we can find 10, we'll continue to work with these people. We also find here that the unrighteous owe the righteous for their good fortune. And this is a pattern we also see in scripture. That oftentimes God does good things to unrighteous people because of the righteous. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Um, in Genesis chapter 30, verse 27, Laban acknowledges this. Remember, Laban worships false gods. Rachel steals some of them and takes them with them when she leaves with uh, her husband. In Genesis chapter 30, verse 27, But Laban said to him, talking to Jacob, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. He says, since you've been around, the Lord has blessed me. Not because I've been doing anything right, but because of you and what you've been doing. God has blessed me because of you. We see this also in Genesis chapter 39. Verse 5, Joseph and Potiphar. Joseph finds favor in Potiphar's sight. He makes him overseer of his house, puts him in charge of all that he has. Verse 5 from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. God blesses Potiphar, who would have been a worshiper of other gods. No, no, no righteousness in him. No submission to Yahweh in him. He blesses him. Why? Because Joseph was there. I'm going to bless Joseph, and as a result, you're going to get blessed as well because of his presence. Uh, the people that are shipwrecked in Acts 27, they are on a boat. They're in a great storm. People die on boats in storms all the time. But in Acts 27, verse 23, Paul says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So they're panicking. They don't know if they're going to they're gonna endure this shipwreck. They don't know if they're going to drown at sea. God communicates to them. He says, you have to stand before Caesar. And because of that, I'm going to make sure you get there. And so the people that are with you are going to be spared. Not because they've done anything right. Not because they prayed for deliverance, but because Paul is with them. The unrighteous are blessed because of the righteous. God says, I'll, I'll, I'll spare Sodom if we can find ten righteous people. Let's take a look at Abraham's, Abraham's intercession here. A couple of things to note here. First of all, it's bold. Abraham is very bold in his prayer life here and in his interaction with God. I fear sometimes that I'm too too timid and passive maybe in the way that I pray. Look at how bold 
Abraham is and how he comes to God over this. He says, um, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole city, the whole place for their sake. Abraham comes with some boldness here. Abraham's pleading prayer is based on what he knows about God's character. He's praying and asking for things that are consistent with God. He's not, he's not praying for his own will. He's not praying for his own selfish desires. He's praying in accordance to what he knows about God's will. Exodus 33.11, or uh, Ezekiel 33.11. This was the passage I was referencing uh, earlier. Ezekiel 33.11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So Abraham is praying. He understands the character of God. He understands that he's the judge of the earth, but he also understands that he's just. And so he is praying in accordance to what he knows about God's character. But he also comes in his intercession with a lot of humility. Abraham maintains respect throughout the discussion. He keeps himself in his proper place. He doesn't presume that he can just boldly come to God's throne and make uh, declarations and requests and demands before him. Look what he says instead. Some of the attitude that comes out in, in the way that he's talking here. Um, verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to you, the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. All right, Abraham comes with, the, with, a, with a mindset of being the creation to the creator. He says, I know, I know my place. I know who I am. I'm not God. I'm not you. I don't have this power. I, I'm dust and ashes. I, I was created by you. And so he comes in humility. And, and that's a, a picture to us in how we're to come to the Lord in prayer as well. We can come boldly, the scriptures tell us, but we come in humility. We don't come making demands, but we can pray boldly for the character of God to be enacted in situations that we're dealing with. That's, that's, what, that's what Abraham's praying for here. He's praying according to the character of God, but he's coming in great humility. I'm but dust and ashes. He goes on to say, um, verse 30, then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Verse 31, he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Verse 32, then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once. There's great humility in how Abraham talks with the Lord here. He prays boldly, but he prays humbly. He prays in accordance to God's character, but he prays constantly reminding himself that he's not God and that God ultimately does what he wants to do. We know how this situation plays out in 19 before we even get there, but I think it is important to note that God eventually spares the righteous. He sweeps away the wicked, but he does spare the righteous. He doesn't include the righteous in that judgment. We'll see that unfold in verse 19. But let's look real quickly here at the sin of Sodom. First of all, the sin of Sodom was great against God was great against God. The rebellion of Sodom had been persistent. You'll remember back in Genesis 13, 13, when Abraham and, Sarah, uh, Abraham and Lot separate. Remember decades ago, they separate. And it says that Lot moved to Sodom. And what does it say about Sodom? They, it was full of wicked and evil people. This isn't something that happens later on. Remember, uh, Abraham has to go and rescue the Sodomites from being uh, ushered off with King Chedorlaomer and his group. Abraham goes and brings them back. They didn't become wicked within the last couple of years. They've been wicked the whole time. They were wicked when God brought them back and saved them out of uh, slavery to King Chedorlaomer. They've been wicked for a long time. Okay, their, their, their wickedness and sin is great against God. 
Not only has it been persistent, they didn't try to hide their wickedness. These aren't good people that are wicked in ways that you don't readily see. In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. All right, Sodom wasn't trying to pretend that they weren't evil. They were very vocal and, and blatantly sinful against God. And they weren't repentant about it. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. They did not repent of their sin and they encouraged others in their sin. They don't turn from it. They strengthen the hands of evildoers. The sin of Sodom was great against God. But secondly, the sin of Sodom was oppressive towards others. Oppressive towards others. They failed to help those in need. Going back to what that dad was saying to his son. They did not help those that needed their help. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. See, I think it's easy to blame Sodom for certain type of sins that we don't struggle with, right? And we can think about all the unnatural desires that we usually label with Sodom, and we're not going to dismiss those, and we're not going to say that any of those things are not wrong. But what I don't want us to miss is that they were also guilty of things that we oftentimes are guilty of as well. So I don't want us to find relief in thinking, oh, God judged them because of their homosexuality. Probably, most likely, but there was also some other things going on that oftentimes we're guilty of as well. It's easy to say, oh, they were judged for a sin that I've never committed and that I'll never commit. They were also judged for things that, that we oftentimes are, are guilty of as well. It says that they had plenty of food, they lived a prosperous, easy life, and they didn't help the poor and needy. They're guilty of these type of things, guilty of injustice. This word outcry that's used here, it's used for the oppressed widow or orphan in Exodus 22, 21 through 24. We'll read a couple of these. In Exodus 22, 21 through 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, there's that word outcry, same word. I will surely hear their cry, and my, my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. It's the same word used for the oppressed servant. In Deuteronomy 24, 15, it's the guy who doesn't get paid by his employer like he's supposed to, and, and he's oppressed for it, and he cries out to God for it. It's the same word used for uh, oppressed Israel in Exodus 2, 23. It's the same word used for the screams of a city under attack in Jeremiah 18 and Jeremiah 20. These outcries, it's used in the context of people who are being oppressed. So it's not just a city who's living according to the flesh and indulging every fleshly desire they have. That's normally what we think of when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah. We think of it always being Saturday night there and it always being a party scene and everybody's just doing whatever they want to do. And there, there's a lot of truth to that. But in the midst of everybody doing what they wanted to do, there were people that were getting walked over because of it. There were people that were being oppressed because of it. You know, one of the, one of the concerns about the tolerance of unnatural uh, marriages and sexual relationships is that it continues to lead and open up the door for people to allow anything and everything. And then you start having people being taken who, ha who want no part of that relationship, but because I want that relationship, I get to take you and oppress you and make you my slave. 
And Atlanta is one of the biggest hubs for that type of activity. I believe that that was, that, was, that was infiltrating into this city. These people were oppressed and there was an outcry. It wasn't just that everybody was loving what was happening inside them. There were some people that were saying, this is not okay. And they were crying out against it. Whether it was people in the city or whether it was people outside the city being affected. There was at least some that were not okay with how Sodom was behaving. And those cries were reaching the Lord. And the Lord says, I hear the cries of the oppressed. And my wrath burns against them, both figuratively and literally, right? We, we, we think of it in terms of figuratively most of the time, but Sodom experiences it literally. It was oppressive towards others. But then number three, the sin of Sodom was perfectly known by God. We know that God knows everything. We know that God doesn't have to be informed of anything, right? But for the sake of human perspective and human understanding i believe that god communicates what he does in verse 20 then the lord said because the outcry against sodom and gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave i will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me and if not i will know i don't know if abraham grasps the concept of omniscience right we we learn about omniscience in sunday school god is all-knowing he knows everything Abraham didn't have Sunday school classes where they talked about omniscience of God. So I think God, for Abraham's sake, in human understanding says, I'm going to go down there and check out Sodom and see if what I've heard is accurate. God knows that it's accurate. He knows what's going on down there. He knows that Sarah laughed in the, in the tent next door. But he says, I want you, Abraham, to know that I know. I know I want you to know that I know. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to show you that I go to great lengths to make sure that what I know is exactly what is happening. I'm going to go down there and check it out. We saw him do that when he came into the Garden of Eden. He says, Adam, Eve, where are you? I know where you are. I know what you did, but I want to, I want to let this play out. I want you to see that when I bring judgment, it's because I've investigated it. Comes and talks to Cain. Cain, where's your brother at? He knows where his brother's at. He knows that his blood's crying out to him. He wants Cain to understand, I've investigated this. I know what you've done when I bring judgment. He comes down and investigates Babel. The, the wordage there is that he came down to see their evil before he confused their languages. He says, Abraham, I'm going to go down there and check it out. And, and, and if, if, if I find out what I know already, then, then I'll know that these outcries are accurate. He goes down to assure Abraham and us that only justice will occur. Is the outcry valid? Have they reached the point of no return like the Amorites would eventually? Remember, he's withholding judgment upon the rest of the promised land so that their sin fills up. He says, I'm going down there to see if the sin of Sodom has reached the point of no return. And if so, I'm going to bring judgment. What do we learn about God in this section? I'm going to start wrapping it up here. What do we learn about God? First of all, God is a judge who always does what is right. Nothing's too hard for God, but what is impossible for him is to do anything that's unjust. He is righteous and his actions are just, and that should provide great comfort to us. He's a judge who always does the right thing. Nothing's too hard for him, but nothing done by him is ever unjust. He's a, God, uh, he's a judge who always does what is right. He's also a judge who hears the outcries of the oppressed. He's a God who hears, he's a God who knows, and he's a God who brings action accordingly. Nothing, nothing, he doesn't miss anything. Right? There, there are people that are being persecuted on other parts of our planet right now that are Christ followers just like we are, and their cries are reaching him. Revelation 6 talks about the people in heaven that are crying out, How long, O oh Lord, do we have to wait? Until our blood is avenged. And he, and he tells them to rest a little bit longer. That there's still more that need to be killed for the sake of Christ. Before Jesus comes back and brings vengeance. He, he's, he's graciously tolerant. Not because he approves. But because he disapproves so greatly. And desires for repentance to happen before he brings his vengeance. He's a God who hears the outcries of the oppressed. And then lastly, he's a judge who listens to the intercession of others. In Genesis chapter 19, and, and Lot better be thanking 
thanking uh, Abraham for his intercession because his sparing in this situation is directly related to that intercessory prayer of Abraham. Genesis 19:29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham's request in prayer and he answered. He's a judge who listens to the intercessions of others. Psalm 106, 23. And I want you to understand this because we're building to our application. Psalm 106, verse 23. Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. That's when Moses prayed to God for Israel to be spared. By God's grace, we have the great intercessor standing in before us. As great as Abraham's intercessory prayers were, as great as Moses was in his intercessory prayers, People still got killed and, and uh, they weren't perfect intercessors. But Romans 8.34 reminds us of the great intercessor that we have standing before us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. A couple of quotes here. Um, we are never more like our Lord than when we are interceding for others. Warren Wiersbe, we are never more like our Lord than when we are interceding for others. And then what, what I really like uh, by um, Charles Spurgeon here. They may reject you in person, but they cannot stop your prayers for them. It's a good reminder that there are people that we pray for. We pray for their salvation. We pray for people who will not listen to us, do not want to have those discussions And Spurgeon's point is they cannot stop us from praying for them. They can stop us from talking to them. They cannot stop us from praying for them. Abraham intercedes for this city of Sodom, probably driven by his love for his his nephew. But I think there's also compassion for this city. He he met some of these people when he went and saved them from King Chedorlaomer. He's praying that God would spare them. It's not that he would just spare the righteous, but he wants nobody really to be swept away. He wants them all to be spared. What do we learn about the end time from this scenario? Because Sodom and Gomorrah is referenced uh, numerous times in reference to the day of the Lord that is to come. The fate of Sodom foreshadows what is coming for all the wicked. Luke 17, 28 through 32 says that the time will be like the time was for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, It's a foreshadowing of what's to come when Jesus returns. The fate of Sodom foreshadows what is coming for all the wicked. But then we also learn that the righteous can be confident that God will spare rather than destroy the righteous with the wicked. And that's ultimately what Abraham was asking for. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And the answer is absolutely not. In Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Okay, so it wasn't just that they didn't take care of the needy and the poor. There was, there was some sensual stuff that was happening that was wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority what's communicated here that god is reserving judgment for the wicked and he is reserving salvation to spare the righteous and he's shown a pattern of that in the past of reserving the wicked for judgment and sparing the righteous whether it's noah and his family whether it's lot 
He does not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And we can be comforted by that this morning. We can also be comforted by the fact that the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous is temporary. I'd encourage you to read Psalm 73 on your own. It's a passage that reminds us that what we see oftentimes is the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. And it's a temporary setup. It's a temporary setup that's going to be reversed when Jesus returns. Um, And we can take comfort and encouragement in that. Our application for today, three points, three questions that I want to ask you. Do you have opportunities to highlight the actions of the righteous over the wicked? And this may or may not apply to you. I, I emailed all my teachers this morning and I said, hey, I'd love to see you over the next two weeks find ways to highlight the actions of the righteous in your class and reward the whole class for those actions and use this story as an opportunity to teach them about the character of God because we're so prone to punish the majority for the actions of a few. Uh, Maybe you have some opportunities where you can really take what we've seen today, a God who was willing to spare for the righteousness of a small amount of people, opportunities to highlight the actions of the righteous over the wicked. Are you currently interceding for anyone specifically? We talk from time to time, and and, and from time to time we mention people in here, pray for so-and-so salvation, pray for uh, my relative's salvation. Is there anybody, uh, and I'm asking myself this question, is there anybody that we are regularly interceding for and doing so boldly and humbly in the way that Abraham did? I think Abraham was grieved over the prospects of of this city being destroyed. Are we praying and interceding for anyone specifically? And then lastly, Are there any areas of your life that you currently need increased faith to see God's goodness? We serve a God where nothing is too hard for him, but we also serve a God where he never does anything that's unjust. But oftentimes we come up against circumstances and situations that feel unjust. It seems like God is sweeping away the righteous with the wicked. It seems like he's not being a God of kindness and love towards his children. It seems like that individual is going through the exact same things as a lost person would. Do we need any increased faith? My thing went away. Do we need any increased faith in any areas of our life to trust in God's goodness? To trust that we serve a God where nothing done by him is unjust? This passage is so important to understanding Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is a familiar passage. We know Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed. This sets the stage for us understanding the rightful judgment of it. Going back to our summary sentence. Not only is nothing too hard for God, everything that God does is right. We've seen that Sodom's wickedness was was great. That the uh, oppressed in their cities were not being taken care of that their judgment was warranted. Everything that God does is right and with purpose. God doesn't just bring judgment upon them. He uses it to spare others, right? He, he, he communicates to Abraham why he's doing what he's doing, communicates what he's going to do. Why? So that Abraham can teach others to avoid a similar situation. God always does things that are right and with purpose, including the judgment upon the wicked. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and and we do want to praise you and thank you. God, we thank you for the reminders of of some things that we probably learned when we were younger, but things that we certainly need to be reminded of today. God, we're thankful that we serve a God who is all-powerful, who's capable of anything, whose plans cannot be thwarted, but we're also so grateful and thankful that you are an all-powerful God that is full of goodness and justice. That you don't use your power for selfish purposes. You don't use your power against your children. Instead, Father, you have given us promises in Scripture that you use your power to work everything for your glory and the good of your children. And so, Father, we praise you and thank you for that this morning. Father, we're thankful that you are a God who hears the outcries of the oppressed. 
And Father, while we don't fully understand everything that was happening in these cities, God, we are thankful that you do not allow evil to continue unchecked. But Father, we are thankful that you move far more slowly than we would oftentimes in these type of situations. While we're not thankful for the wickedness, we are thankful that you tolerated Sodom and Gomorrah for decades because it teaches us and reminds us of your own gracious mercy in our own life and how patient you are with us. God, we're thankful that you are a God who who listens to us when we intercede on behalf of others, when, when we're burdened and concerned for others. We're thankful that you are a God who hears us, who welcomes us into your presence and allows us to speak boldly. God, keep us humble in our intercession, intercession for others. God, give us, give us great humility, but give us great boldness to where we, we feel empowered to rely upon your character and the ways that you've revealed yourself. And we can pray according to your will and ask you for things that you desire to give. God, help us to realize that we're praying to a God who is very willing rather than reluctant to do the things that you've promised to do. Father, I pray that that what we're seeing here in this study of Sodom and Gomorrah would be a a strong reminder to us that when we we feel that the wicked around us are prospering and that uh, the righteous are suffering, that this is a temporary, temporary situation. God, we're thankful for the hope that we have, that Jesus Christ, who, who is our, uh, our, our perfect lamb, our perfect sacrifice, that he is coming as our perfect king to right all the wrongs. God, I pray that we would see this event, this historical event, as a foreshadowing of things to come. And God, I pray that you would break our hearts for those around us that, that need to be spared from this judgment. God, break our hearts for our relatives, but break our hearts for our own city. Lord, help us not to be, uh, to fail to live here and to not care for the people that are around us. Lord, I pray that Abraham's example would, would serve as a reminder to us that we need to be broken over the sins of those around us. That even Lot, who, who seems to, to be very passive, God, you've reminded us that he was tormented over the behavior of those around him and longed to see change in the hearts of the people. God, I pray that we would be driven to pray. Even when people are unwilling to listen, we're thankful that you still listen to our prayers for their salvation. God, I pray that you would increase our faith and trust in you when, when we doubt at times your goodness. Help us to be reminded constantly nothing's too hard for you and nothing that you do is unjust. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.